Welcome to episode 289 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So I have a confession. The series that we're in here, this fancy term for the study of sin and all things surrounding sin, Harmartiology is one of the least friendly words for my mouth. And I just <laughs> always, when it comes to saying this word, I always feel like it's just going to come out all wrong. So aside from hating sin generally writ large, I also hate all iterations or descriptions of it, especially the word, here we go again, harmartiology. See, you can't even say it right when you're thinking about it. There's no, I know, there's that's no the R, thing. it's harmartiology. I, I know, that's the thing. It's like, it just, this, this combination of consonants and vowels just doesn't feel natural on my tongue. So I don't know what it is. You you will be familiar with this because you grew up in this area. But there's a subset of people who live in New Hampshire who pronounce certain words with extra R's. True. So they'll say parking garage instead of garage, or they say George Washington. So I think maybe that's a little bit of what's going on. Whatever causes that, whatever's in the water, it's like a leftover from your childhood. That you say harmartiology instead of hamartiology. Yeah, that's. I just want to get another constant in there because it doesn't sound like it should go. There should be a bridge. That bridge should be the R, and I don't know why it's not there. Yeah. So, yeah. It, Probably because a, of the fall. It is because of the you fall. You have a total man. inability to say that word. Best segue ever, but we're just not ready for it we're yet. We're not ready for it. I'll, I'll, that's I also more. the fall. I got more coming. Don't worry. <laughs> Well, we are going to talk more about homotheology. See, it's not even good there. We're going to talk about it. And this time we're talking a little bit about the scope, the breadth of sin, its destruction in our lives and in the world. And I kind of have an ax to grind on this one because I feel like of all the different facets of sin, would you agree that this one is like really misunderstood and also misunderstood by others who are outside their form tradition, oh, peering yeah. in yeah. and trying to, okay, make reflections. So I got, I've got some things to say. We yeah. got to talk about it. It's yeah. going to be great. But before we do that, let's do a little affirmations and denials. And I'm happy to kick us off because I've got a really straightforward and easy one. And I'm affirming with some more music. Let's now, the fear that I have about affirming with more music is that it's possible I've already affirmed with said music before. So everybody, please grant me some grace. But I don't think I mentioned this one before. So I'm affirming with a relatively new album. It's by a band called Meadows, M-E-A-D-O-W-S. And the beautiful thing about this band is it's a melodic hardcore band, but it's not like your grandpa's melodic hardcore. It's this kind of unique blend of atmospheric guitar and the vocals that blend all the way or range all the way from like spoken word or like a harsh yell. So like the likes of Me Without You or La Dispute, if people are familiar with those groups. But this is a really fantastic album. And it is called, I'm trying to pull it up right now, In Those Days and Also After. And this is a really, the reason maybe why I hesitated in the past to affirm this is because it's an album that's super deep, super nuanced, a little bit haunting, and a little bit depressing in the sense that it's a really raw reflection of writing about fallenness and sin in our world and God, even in the midst of that, embedding himself and providing hope, even in the midst of really complicated family issues and addictions and all kinds of violence. So this is a really beautiful album. 
it's the kind of thing that I think is a little bit of acquired taste. You'll listen to it and you'll hear all these dynamics in the music and in the storytelling, but it's dark in a way that is dark for Christians who are rejoicing that God in the midst of these things always shows up. In fact, the, my understanding is the name Meadows comes from Psalm 65, 13, which reads, The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So I give that all to provide a little bit of framing for this because it's a really fascinating album, but I'm all the way still in affirming the band Meadows in their most recent offering called In Those Days and Also After. Nice. Nice. I will listen to as much as I can tolerate. <laughs> That's like the common, this is the common response I have. And it just, just is what it is. I'm going to set the over under because I know this album well and I've listened to it a lot. Uh, and I know the opening song. I'm going to set the over under at seven seconds, seven which I seconds, think is, okay. is fair. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll see fair. what happens. That's we'll okay. Do, it's I'll, a maybe I'll do a live, a live cast reaction. That would be hilarious. Hey, listen, if you if you know, you know. So what are you affirming on this episode? So this is another one of those qualified uh, affirmations. So one of the things um, that I'm finding has happened to me since becoming a father is a lot of my views about things have grown more conservative, even perhaps you could say more patriarchal um, as I've become a patriarch. So... I'm not a patriarchalist, uh, and I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to be. I don't exactly know what to call myself. I'm not really a complementarian. I don't know what, it, what I am. I think we call it a gender parity. But one of the things that I'm learning uh, as I start to you know, raise my family here, a lot of the insights that the patriarchal crowd has, um, and when I think patriarchal crowd, I'm thinking people like Doug Wilson, Michael Foster, um, right. the non-tenant, um, people that I would not endorse for any reason and am not endorsing at this point, except to say that some of the things they say overlap with just general good principles, um, I think almost by accident. But I've been listening to a podcast called The King's Hall, which is um, people who think very highly of the kinds of people that I just mentioned, which is why this is a qualified um, affirmation. But so far, I've listened to probably four or five of their episodes, and I actually think it's quite good, and there's a lot of really good insights. Um, I think this is an example of post-mill theology or post-mill recon theology done really well. Um, because the way that they talk about it is it's not it's not like there's going to be this definite period of time golden age, which is how a lot of post-mill recon comes across, even if that's not what they mean. But what they're talking about is very much just propagating the kingdom by making disciples. And as you make disciples, that will necessarily transform the culture. And they're they're talking about doing it in like a really systematic intentional way. So check it out. It may not be everybody's cup of tea. What I find and why I'm okay sort of recommending them is at least so far, one of the, one of the downsides of the patriarchalist crowd is they tend to be almost sort of like shock jocks. They say a lot of things almost seemingly intending just to be shocking and inflammatory. Um, These guys have some of that edginess that is really common in that crowd, but they don't seem to be trying to be intentionally inflammatory. They strike me as though they recognize sometimes what they say is inflammatory, but that's not usually their intention. Um, So check it out. The episodes are good. Some of them are like historical looks at how how we got the church where, where it is, how things have happened the way they are. So they did an episode on what they call the big, fast, famous model, which is kind of like a critical analysis of like the Mar- the Mars Hill mega church model. 
um, they just did a kind of a critical analysis of revivalism and kind of the Billy Graham evangelism model. So I think it's worth checking out, you know, as with everything, year-wise people, you can go to the scriptures and compare what it says to the scriptures. And maybe I'm going to get three episodes down the road and they're going to dive face first into EFS or something crazy like that. And I'm going to have to make a retraction and say, yeah, don't actually do too much listening to these guys. But at least so far, I've enjoyed it. I've been edified by it. I think they've got they've got good things to say, even though I might disagree with some of the eschatology that kind of underlies what they say. Um, but the, the basic principle, I don't think anybody can disagree with Christian men should raise their family and they should lead them and they should sacrifice for them. They should go to bed tired. They should get up early and work hard for their families and they should do all of that to glory of God. I mean, that's the basic thesis of what they've got to say. And I don't know anybody who would disagree with that. So check it out. It's called the King's Hall. You can get on Apple podcasts anywhere else you can find podcasts. These are pretty outstanding affirmations, if I don't say so myself, because there's a little bit of variedness in them, isn't there? There's yeah. a little bit of used discernment. There's a little bit of sweet and salty and spicy. And <laughs> it, you know what I mean? Like it's all in there. And this might be a good time to say that sometimes what you hear from us is like a real-time affirmation. We're processing, reading, listening to something. And because for posterity's sake or otherwise, all of what we say gets dropped onto the internet. And at any time yeah. that affirmation, which might've seemed on point could at some point come back and change or bend in such a direction that we wouldn't have originally recommended it. Even with that all still, I would say one of the things we've always tried to encourage our brothers and sisters is to read broadly, to listen broadly, to process broadly. So it's always, of course, to take everything that you're reading and consuming and to use great godly discernment with it. In fact, that's really what we're after is not to somehow partition ourselves off from all these different viewpoints. We could also, I think, make the argument that it's good for us to know how the world and how others are processing the same things that we are, but to make sure that we're passing everything through the sieve that is the scripture. So I think even in your affirmation there, that's a good reminder. I appreciate that we sometimes give that little disclaimer, but oftentimes you want to just be Pauline about it and be like, as you said, you're reasonable people like discern for yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, so what are you really denying good. this week? <laughs> We're so chill. I'm right a little now. mellow today. I'm, although yeah. I will say this, uh, August has been sleeping like ridiculously well for the past couple nights. So I actually praise feel like God. I got enough sleep. Yeah. Praise God. Like seriously. Um, I actually feel like I got enough sleep, but I still have kind of that like, sleep deprivation hangover that happens after you have like a week of really bad sleep. It takes like a week and a half of good sleep to make up for it. So hopefully these last couple nights haven't been a fluke, but I'm, I'm very chill today because I'm kind of like, there's a combination of sleep deprivation and then the endorphins of having a good night's sleep that are all just rushing through my body. Plus I'm drinking good scotch, which is always nice. I like it, man. You're a deep man right now. So <laughs> many things going on. Yes. Well, what are you denying, Jesse? <laughs> Let's keep this moving. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping you might be able to jump in on me with this denial. And it certainly falls under the auspices of some of what we're talking about today. But maybe I'm an old man. Maybe I'm on my lawn. Maybe I'm shaking my fist at the young children who are running by. But there is something that I've seen creep back up a couple of times in kind of general evangelicalism. And it goes something like this. The basic argument is that in some way, being privy to miracles, either present as we might appropriately describe them, or apostolically as we might find them in the scriptures, explicitly in the gospels, that being privy, present, seeing those things would be a progenitor for great faith. 
That is that those who would see them, we would say even in our modern context, well, if I was there and I saw that, of course, I'd absolutely believe. So I'm just denying against that whole philosophy. I don't know why it continues to upcrop, like just drop into sermons or talks or writing, but I'm seeing this again in a couple of different places. And again, it's this idea that somehow if I just saw certain things, that it would be so plain and obvious that we could even look back and criticize those who were present at that time that either complained against God after experiencing miracles or either that saw them. And for whatever reason, and you know, we're looking at you Pharisees that just <laughs> said, you know what? do you know what, who's doing these things? This isn't God, this is Satan. And to that, I would say, we are all those people <laughs> that the only reason if you can sit back now and say, well, it seems so plain that God was doing his work, that Jesus himself was manifesting the presence of God, that that is only because God has done the surgery, which you cannot do for yourselves, in that he is taking you to the operating table and removed that heart of stone and put the heart of flesh in there. If in fact you hear his voice, it's because he has allowed you to hear his voice and to listen. So I'm denying against that because it just seems to keep popping up. And I think it pops up like in subtle ways. It's not this overt sense of like, well, anybody who's seen a miracle would have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's more this subtle idea that we can kind of bring some judgment on those who are present, especially in the work of Christ. And yet somehow, remarkably, or to be like, I've heard it this way, somebody saying something like, I am just baffled that they saw that and didn't believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you were getting ready for this episode we're about to do with this denial. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's reality. Like people people think that they can make the spirit do what they want it to do. So even even people who uh, what they want him to do. Sorry about that. Uh, even people who are reformed Calvinistic people a lot of times still have this kind of hangover where they they feel like if if they can just get the get the right apologetic argument or if they can just present the right you know, theological position. I think that this is true even even when you're talking to other Christians in terms of like theological debate. One of the things I've learned over the years is it's it's very rare that you convince somebody that something is true based on like one single interaction and argument. You could have the most perfect argument in the world, but they've done a lot of studies and actually like really good arguments in, in any arena. They don't actually convince people to change their minds. So that that's why I think reformed theology is so gets it so right when they focus on experiential preaching and experiential theology, because you know, the Holy Spirit uses all sorts of means to convert people, right? Primarily the Bible, but he uses the Bible in a variety of ways to convert the sinner, to build faith in the sinner and to convert them. And one of the ways that I don't see him doing very often, I guess it happens once in a while, is like somebody puts forward a rock solid argument on Facebook and like that, that like convinces somebody. And I think when we focus so much on the arguments, we focus so much on the evidence or the, the form of an argument, um, we really miss the boat and we do exactly what you're talking about. We think that our arguments are what's going to convert a soul that if we convince someone to think the right things or to observe the right things or to feel the right things, that we're going to convert a soul. And in reality, it the spirit converts who he wishes when he wishes. And I think we would do well to remember that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at is it's, it's both this reminder that the working of God is always the full working of God and God alone. 
And then beyond that, to be careful about how we try to retrospectively go back and weigh in on whether or not there should be belief, especially in the presence of miracles. I would actually argue, and I'm going to try to thread this needle like very carefully, that miracles can actually be a hurdle to faith because oh, yeah. it can compromise the genesis of that faith. Now, I'm, I'm still saying that in light of the fact that God, of course, is always doing the saving. He's always doing the enlightening and the quickening and the enlivening and the hardening in the mind. But when we can point back to a time, because God still saves this way, of course, like God can still bring salvation and this kind of enlightenment through the mighty working of miraculous deeds, both now and in the past. Those are all true and real. It's just to say that, you know, I don't understand why, it, you know, the nation of Israel was not believing. I feel like Paul is pretty good at addressing that. We're still caught in in the adventures of Romans 1, yeah. no matter what. That is still like the pool in which we're always swimming. So whether you're in the shallow end or the deep end of that pool, you're still in the pool. So it's just really hard for me to get around the fact that when people get confused as to why, like, what well, just seems so strange, you know, here's Jesus doing all these great things. He is the son of God. It seems so plain and so clear. And in some ways I want to say, well, praise be to God, because it only seems clear to you because God has made it clear. But then on the other hand, you want to say, well, you don't think that we are any better than anybody else, because apart from the mighty working of God, I would have stood in the presence of Jesus, seen him heal the paralytic, seen him touch the leper and be like, that's nonsense right there. Yeah. That doesn't come from God. That's from Satan. I would be that person saying that apart from the grace of God, who brings all of that into the proper framing and the proper understanding. Yeah, for sure. And I think sometimes we do, you know, we lose track of the fact that God designed salvation in a certain way. I don't want to say in order that no one may boast, but he designed it in a way where it is true that no one may boast. And I think sometimes we forget that because we do exactly that. We boast in something we have no business boasting in. And just as a side note, I mean, there, there's a lot of valid criticisms of presuppositional um, apologetics, but I think this is one of those areas where presuppositional apologetics and just presuppositionalism as a whole, even when you're not applying it to apologetics, is really strong, is that it understands that everybody needs to be changed by the Holy Spirit in order to right see on. the truth. You you can't you can't argue with someone and convince them to change their presuppositions because presuppositions by definition are something that cannot be criticized. There's something that's foundational to a system. And so you can't, that's not to say people don't change their presuppositions, but you can't really argue them because they're assumed they're presupposed. And so it, it ends up being a situation where, you know, you're kind of dancing in circles, right? If, if you're going to argue with an atheist who thinks that the Bible is just some Bronze Age relic, and you're going to use the scripture in order to try to convince them to come to Jesus, you're barking up the wrong tree usually. So it's not until the Holy Spirit, in that case, convinces them that that is actually the Word of God by the secret workings of the Holy Spirit there, uh, that you have any any fruit of that. So yeah, I think it's I think that's exactly right. There's just a lot of this, that maybe that reverse presupposition that I've seen kind of smuggled into a lot of current teaching. Again, this idea that it's not that we're better than anybody else or that we, looking back historically, we have a better perspective than the Israelites. It's just this idea of like, well, if I saw those things, it seems beyond doubt that yeah. I would clearly give my allegiance to Jesus Christ, would recognize him as Savior and as Lord. And that to me is a bridge too far to cross without the Holy Spirit. So it's just one of those things where I think we always have to be immensely careful about how we talk about that. And and I hear what you're saying, and that's something I hadn't really considered before. If we think about 
presuppositions, right? And I, I hear kind of what you're saying. They're almost at best, they're intractable. And right. at worst, they're maybe irrevocable. Right. But if you think about, if, if you were just to say to yourself, I want to dramatically change my presuppositions. Like I just want to challenge them. You're always going to have to go outside of yourself, like in a semi-transcendent way to try to find that kind of force to bring in new knowledge or new expertise or some kind of new weight so that they might be changed. So even with that, what we're clearly saying is presuppositions for the most part, even if we try to change them outside of, let's say we could somehow do this outside of what God was superintending in our lives, that it would have to come from the outside. I mean, that's how embedded they are. So if, when Paul tells us that Romans one is legit, I mean, he wouldn't call it Romans one, of course, but he's like, yeah, listen, I wrote all this stuff down for you that you're exchanging all of the truth of God for a lie. And that is the normative default position. Then that is just intractable and it is irrevocable and whether or not it's God or somebody else, we need somebody else outside of ourselves to even challenge that. So it just seems to me we are so helpless in our own selves. If we turn inward, then it's just death and destruction yeah. all the time, everywhere. Like cue Noah being like, yo, that's why I built the boat. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that, this is what God tells us. And yeah. it, it, it stings, right? Like yeah. I understand it stings. Um, it's, it's a challenge. It's conflicting because our nature doesn't want to hear that. And it's confrontational. It's like all up in your face, Yeah. but it's, it is the grace, grace of God and the greatness of God to bring himself all up into our face so yeah. that we might see that we need this great savior. Yeah. Well, I think, um, that is a heck of a denial. And so I, I was happy to join in and I will leave my own denial off the table just cause I think that's good to just let that sit on top of us a little bit. Uh, but before we transition into our episode, which is basically more of the same of what we just said for another 45 minutes, um, <laughs> I wanted to just take a quick moment to to share a really cool, good opportunity for people. It sounds like I'm about to get into like a multi-level marketing scheme here, which I promise you I'm not. Um, as we mentioned that. before, uh, Reform Brotherhood has a partnership with Lagos Bible Software. Uh, I've finally made a redirect, so you can actually go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos, and that will take you to our Logos partner page, where you can make a purchase of any base package uh, and get five free books. However, right now they have a special offer going on. If you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Logos May 2022, all one word, Logos May 2022, uh, you can get a uh, a package, which is the Logos Fundamentals, Logos 9 Fundamentals, and five books uh, for, if this is your first time using Logos, you can get it for $50, which is a huge steal. So I don't Amazing. know what all of the extra, I don't know what all of the package resources in the Fundamentals package kit is. Um, I'm sure it's got you know, basic Bibles. It's probably got some Bible dictionaries. There's probably some theological resources. Um, it's going to be a very basic level, but it's a good place to start your library. But you can also get, and these are uh, these are the five free books you get. It's a critical and exegetical commentary on Genesis, which is valued at $37. The Atonement, its relation to the covenants, the priesthood, and intercession of our laws, which is by Hugh Martin. That's $10. Studies in Theology. I don't know what's in that, but that's also $10. How to Study the Bible for Great Profits, which is by R.A. Torrey. And that's twelve ninety nine, and you can get the Spurgeon commentary on First Peter, which is normally twelve ninety nine. So you can get all of that for if you use Logos, like if you're a Logos user and you haven't purchased a package and you want to purchase this, you can get that for a hundred dollars, which is still well worth the money. But if you've never signed up for a Logos um, account, you can go to that link. 
you can get this for $50 and you can use the partner code partner offer nine when you check out. And that's all on the webpage. So I know this sounds really like sales gimmicky, Um, full transparency. Jesse and I do get some residuals if people purchase through our link, but this is such a, such a really good deal on this package. I wanted to make sure people know it. Cause I know I've heard in the telegram chat, which is special announcement. Number two is join the telegram chat. People have mentioned using Lagos. And so I know there are people in that group in the chat, which is up to like 75 people now who are interested in making a purchase or making a joining in on Lagos to get access to these resources. So now is the time to do it because this is a really good deal. Uh, I'm going to try to do a better, a better job of making sure I get like an email every month that has all their special deals and I don't ever do anything with it, but I'm going to try to do a better job of making sure that's available because there really are some phenomenal uh, resources available at a pretty good price if you've got a budget for it. Or yeah, let's say your pastor talking. doesn't have Logos and he's doing it all the old school way and you want to buy this for him. It's relatively cheap. It's a good gift. Great gift. It's not October, but who doesn't want to buy the pastor a good gift any time of the yeah. year? Yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great gift. We reject that calendar, right? You can appreciate your pastor yeah. any week. This is the Reform Brotherhood. There's no liturgical calendar <laughs> that includes pastoral appreciation month. Every month is pastoral appreciation month. Exactly. There we go. Just do it always. Yeah, I was going to say, before we started recording, I was kind of lamenting to you that I, for some reason, aren't receiving those offers now. So just yeah. forward it to me when you get that email so I can see what's <laughs> out there. I mean, one of the things I'll add just to that is I want to challenge people. I think we got a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are voracious readers, that are inveterate learners. And one of the things I appreciate about the fact it, about uh, Logos is the fact that it is like kind of omni-channel. So it's across all platforms. So if you have a mobile device, cell phone, smartphone, if you have a tablet, there are all the applications, the Logos applications there and embedded or native to that application is like a reading function like you might find for Kindle or, or you know right. Google or some other reader. So what's great here is like Tony is saying, you can like build up your library and you can read just books, just good books, like not even doing research, but say you want to read one of those books about how to read the Bible. It, it's all right there and it's super clever and super nice. So it's another way or another application or another medium by which you just get a hold of really good books in electronic form that you can just read and enjoy. So it's worth it just for that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And then, of course, as I mentioned, you can join our Telegram chat, which is growing strong. Lots of great conversations. It's not uncommon for me to come back after I've been away from my phone for a little while. There's like 120 messages and (laughs) people have been having a good time. Uh, which also we do have this uh, clubhouse chat that our brother Vincent has been setting up. They've gone two weeks now. It's going strong. So you can join the Telegram chat by going to t.me slash reform brotherhood. And uh, as I've said, if you don't have Telegram, it'll give you instructions on how to join. If you do have Telegram, it should jump you straight in that channel. It's just a lot of fun. We're having really good chats. We're having really good conversations. Uh, we had we had the most calm, rational, uh, direct, peaceful conversation about Doug Wilson <laughs> and some of his issues that I've ever seen in the history of my time on the internet. There we go. So this is a place where because it, I think because it's happening in real time, people are are a little bit more attuned to how they're coming across. Uh, there's a little bit more give and take. So people's personalities shine through a little bit more than they do in kind of these asynchronous chat uh, menus or uh, venues like um, Facebook or Twitter. So check it out. I'm really having a good time. I think it's a it's an interesting experiment. It seems like people are enjoying it. And there's a lot of good brothers and sisters now that have joined that group. It's super fun. You know you want in. Just do it. If you have any reservations, cast those aside Yes, and just try it out. Even if you just want to be a wallflower it's true. and sit in and see what people are talking about. It's super fun. And by the way, it's a lot of brothers and sisters getting to know each other. So right. we had a brother who popped in who is living in Alaska and there was lots of questions about Alaska, which 
I was happy to learn some stuff about Alaska. So it's just people that are brothers and sisters in Christ getting to know one another. And of course, a lot of times that conversation revolves around theology, but not always. Sometimes it just revolves around adorable pictures of babies, which there's a lot of brothers and sisters that have some above average looking covenant children. It's true. It's true. Real quick before we move on, because I was in that interim while you were talking about how awesome our Telegram chat is, I was able to look up what's included in the Logos Fundamentals Kit. (laughs) So you get the Christian Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the Lexham English Bible, and the Holy Bible King James Version. Uh, You're going to get a variety of commentaries, including how to read Proverbs, how to read Proverbs. Apparently there's two of those. Osborne's New Testament commentaries, Bible nice. knowledge commentary. You're going to get various Bible encyclopedias. You're going to get some devotional materials. So there's a Connect the Testaments 365-day devotional plan, which is basically it helps you read the Old Testament and the New Testament together and kind of helps you understand what's going on there. Uh, there's some audiobooks included, so you can get the ESV audiobook. So if you'd like to listen to the Bible nice. as you drive to work. Um, there is... Foundations of the Christian Faith, which is a systematic theology. Uh, J.I. Packer's Concise Theology, I believe, is in here. Uh, There's a lot of really good stuff in this. And then, of course, you can always add individual books later on. Uh, if you find something you really want that you um, you want to add to your library, it's not like you have to purchase them all at one time. And if at some point in the future you decide you want to upgrade to a higher level package, the books you already own are discounted out of that package. So it's not like you're paying for them twice. So if you if you have any interest, I really feel like I'm going overboard, but this is just such a great deal. I just can't <laughs> I can't I can't underemphasize or overemphasize how hot. good this is. I'm just really excited about this. I wish that this deal had been around when I was not using a package of Logos because I was just kind of piecemealing together stuff. This package is a really good way to start your theological library in a digital form. Um, I know that people like hardcover books. I like hardcover books, but this is a really useful way to start building up this digital library. Um, these are really good resources, and uh, and it's a it's a really good price right now. You can get it for fifty dollars. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, two more things because now we're really strained infomercial <laughs> territory. But the one of the benefits, and I'm with you, physical books are great. I have a lot of physical books, much to my wife's chagrin. But one of the great benefits of having everything in Logos is the searchability of everything. Right. That is epic. Yes. So I can't underemphasize how many times I've gone there to find something that I thought was going to be a needle in a haystack. And sure enough, it comes up right away. The search function there is Epic. I think you would agree. Like not only finding exactly what you're looking for, but what they call like the fuzzy search, the stuff around the center of the thing you're trying to get to, which I I found is so helpful. Last thing I'll say is, listen, loved ones, CSB, that's kind of like a translation dark horse. That's like an underemphasized, underutilized, undervalued translation. I have one sitting on my desk actually right now, which I often use for just reading in my personal time. I'll study the scriptures. I really like it. So I feel like that's a great value. So just get that sneaked in there. Yeah, definitely do it. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the actual topic, which is not an hour-long commercial for Lagos, as much as we love Lagos. Uh, we're talking about what I'm calling the scope of sin, but you may have heard of it under the name total depravity. So this little Ooh. doctrine that Calvinists uh, affirm called total depravity. But I, I, call, I called it something different because I think when we talk about total depravity, um, we really limit what we're talking about to a very specific element of the scope of sin. We limit it to are Christians able to do spiritual good or will spiritual good on their own. And that's certainly a part of the conversation, but this idea of the scope of sin, talking about how much does it actually affect 
the human constitution or nature? How how deep does it go? How expansive is it? How total is it? It's a major part of the conversation. And then also, uh, what does it affect outside of the the human constitution? What is it, what's the implications for it on the created order, on the cosmos, on our knowledge, on our will? All of those right. things tie into it. And what I'm really excited about, and this kind of happened accidentally, I'll be honest. It, I, I would love to take credit for this as though I planned it. One of the things that I'm really excited about how this came together, because I'm following, unashamedly, we're following more or less the order of the Westminster uh, Confessions as we build out this theological fundamentals super series or mega series. Um, the points of doctrine of Cal- of Tulip, the five points, are not coming as like a, an episode on five points. It's not like right. we're going to do five episodes now on the, the doctrines of grace. Lots of shows have done that. I think that's a perfectly fine thing to do, especially if your target audience is kind of either people who are not Calvinists and interested in learning about it or kind of people who are newer Calvinists, not new Calvinists, although most of them are new Calvinists too, newer Calvinists who are sort of just at the entry level. I think our audience, as I've talked to people, is actually more progressed along the pathway of becoming more and more robustly confessional than the average Reformed Calvinist podcast is. So I'm excited that we're not handling the doctrines of grace kind of as like one lump sum, because although the Synod of Dort, and we'll talk, we'll we'll read some some of the uh, Synod of Dort today, which is exciting because we're usually like camp out in the Westminster, we don't get to the other stuff. Although they have all five points, it's not in these order. And actually, they they responded to the five points of Arminianism with six points. So even right. even this construct that we have of the five points of Calvinism is already an artificial constraint on the way that our confessional heritage has articulated this theology. So I'm stoked that we're kind of we're being forced to break out of that mold a little bit by following closely to the order that the confessions have. First of all, you did it to me again. You basically <laughs> just you just confession juked me cuz oh, all I was thinking, all I was thinking while you were talking was, please let me get to the Westminster before Tony does yes. cuz you always get there before I do. And I love the way that you deposition this because part of me was thinking and maybe some of our listeners who are particularly astute noticed that in the intro I purposely did not use the words total depravity yes. because this is kind of like part and parcel. It's like table stakes for every reform podcast to yeah. do some episode on the five points and the talk about total depravity. And, and I think for a lot of people, once you hear that, you just tune out. Cause you're like, right. yeah, 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 been there, done that. So in the Westminster confession, I like the way that it's kind of manifest as this idea of like total inability, right. which of course is showing my cards a little bit and already triggering me, as you can tell maybe. And I like the way the Westminster says it. So even though you've just, totally confession juked me. We want to go to Dort. I'm just going to say what the Westminster says anyway. So here's the Westminster on this, which I think is of course fantastic man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto, end quote. So obviously what you see there is everything that Paul, Augustine, Calvin, they all have at their starting point this fact, and they would say it's a fact, that all mankind sinned in Adam and that all men are therefore without excuse. That's adventures in Romans 2. So time and again, you have Paul telling us that, I mean, here's this like really dramatic language. It's not hyperbolic. It is like the essential and critical nature of how he describes humanity, that we are dead, dead, no long, no heart beating, no illness, not convalescent, dead in trend passes and says, 
and estranged from God and helpless. And so in the writings of the Ephesian Christians, he reminds them that before they received the gospel, they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth yeah. of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, which, you know, we kind of appropriate, we, we just stand on, we put, we hang our hats on. They had no hope and were without God in the world. This is like the really bad news, some of which we've already said before, but I see that as like the proper framing for the beginning of a conversation of what it means when we say total depravity or the inability of man. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to read, um, I'm going to read articles one, two, and three of the third and fourth main points of doctrine of the Synod of Dort. They have the, the numbering naming scheme at Dort is very confusing to me, but this is the, this is articles one, two, and three of the third and fourth main points of doctrine in the canons of Dort. So article one is the effect of the fall on human nature. And it says, quote, man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with the true and salutary knowledge of his creator and things spiritual in his will and heart with righteousness and in all of his emotions with purity. Right. So that's what we've talked about. Adam and Eve had everything they needed, all the knowledge they needed, all of the relationship they needed, all of the, the ability they needed to obey God and to fulfill right. their mandate. Right. And then continuing, it says, indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all of his emotions. Right? So that's kind of like the scope of sin. That's the scope of what it does to us. It, it pervades and it affects and it worms its way into every element of who we are. Now, right. this is primarily talking about kind of metaphysical things rather than like how this affects our body. We're going to actually get into that when we get to Genesis 3 a little bit later. And then Article 2 is titled The Spread of Corruption. Uh, and then uh, quoting, man brought forth children of the same nature of himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants, except for Christ alone, not by way of imitation, as the former times, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by way of the propagation of his perverted nature. Right. So, so you have both elements of what we talked about last week. You have the the corruption of nature, which sort of naturally propagates through the species, but then you also, if you read this closely. This corruption is spread not just by natural consequence, but by right. God's just judgment. So we talked about last week how, yes, corruption spreads in a sort of like ontological, almost genetic hereditary fashion, but that spreading of that corruption would not be just if it were not for the fact that along with that corruption or more properly because of the because of the guilt that corruption flows forward. That corruption is grounded and justified and is is um, legitimized by the fact that the guilt of sin also transmits. And then this is where, where we're going to camp out this week, is Article 3, which is total inability, and says, quote, Therefore all people are conceived in sin and are right. born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted natures, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. So the the divines at the, the Synod of Dort, they're, they're, this is not a, a positively constructed doctrine, right? This is a response to an Arminian error. And it's important when you read Dort to remember that. that this, is a, this is a polemic response to errors that the Arminians had put forward. So what the Arminians were putting forward is that, yes, Adam's nature was corrupted in the fall, 
And yes, he passes on that corruption to all of his descendants. Uh, they would deny that the guilt was passed down. But yes, that corruption is passed down. That predisposes us to sin. It in some sense means that we're born under condemnation. However, after Christ comes and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, they argued that all people have received provenient preparatory grace from the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit basically reverses the effects of the fall in reference to our ability, our corruption, such that we are able actually to will good. We are able to will uh, positively to predispose ourselves to reform. So this goes back to what we're saying in Jesse's denial, is some of us do evangelism or even sometimes do, you know, to kind of go back to my affirmation, sometimes people do um, like culture wars and post-milk recon and the the moral majority and the religious right, like the, all those groups are actually doing things that sort of reveal they think that you can actually, through natural means, right. predispose someone to reform. And so the reformed tradition, uh, especially in the canons of Dort here, as a response to all of those errors, is pushing back against that and saying, absolutely not. The Holy Spirit does not prepare people for grace and then leave them in that state. Either he regenerates them and brings them to a state of salvation, or he leaves them in the estate they were in with no ability to will or to do or to predispose themselves for reform. So right. we could end the episode now and we've said everything we need to say. <laughs> I think you all know we're not going to. We're going to go deeper into that. But that's the that's where we're at. That's total depravity. Total yes. depravity is not this like yeah, people can't choose Jesus, but like they could do a lot of like you can get them to read their Bibles. The the right. biggest pet peeve I have is when people say like, yeah, just um, just encourage people to pray and like ask them to like challenge God to show up and like He will. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that is so not bad. only is it not real, it's not true, but it's blasphemous uh. and it's dangerous for us to teach people who do not have Christ as their mediator to come into the presence of the living God right. without a mediator to take their punishment. We're basically asking them to go into the proverbial's lion's den and slap the lion in the mouth and see what happens. Well, maybe the lion will curl up and purr next to you, or maybe it will rip your face off and eat you. Like it's probably going to rip your face off and eat you. So, so it's important for us to land total depravity or the scope of sin because it, it should undergird all of our evangelism. We should be going into an evangelism encounter, not thinking if I can just get the right words or if I can just present the right argument or just read the right Bible verse or pull on the right, right. emotional string or whatever, then I can get them to come into the kingdom. That's not real. It's not the, what the Bible presents. It's not what our shared confessional interpretations of the scripture present. The Bible and our confessional heritage presents man as dead in sin, not sick, not predisposed away from righteousness, right. dead, unable to do any righteousness or to predispose themselves to any good. Right. That's why this thing smites, it burns, it stings, right? It does. To extend kind of your metaphor, it's almost like we know that the natural state of man is this really dry soil that repels water. You've got to let this truth just sit and pool until God himself does yeah. the work to bring it inside, to aerate and to soften this hard ground by way of his grace, but it has to pull first. Yeah. So I'm totally with you. I think of all the things that we've said that we might put on a t-shirt from this podcast, I think maybe the line will 
<laughs> what was it? Rip off your face yes, and, and eat, eat you. you. Yeah. Yeah. That should be the kind of thing that we slap on a shirt and just say, that's the reformed brotherhood. But you're right, of course. And, and to like settle in that little bit, to like let it pool, so to speak, to continue my metaphor. Here's what I'd recommend is, and maybe we're both triggered now, uh, at least I am is to say what this thing is not right. like a, as a way of kind of diving more deeply into what it is. Yeah, let's do it. And this is as much like a critique against those who would come to us and say, I disagree with total depravity or total inability as you've just defined it. So here's the first thing. And this is just to like clear the air and the table before us to continue in this conversation. So this doctrine of total inability which is declaring, as you said, that men are dead in sin. It doesn't mean that all men are equally bad. We can right. disavow that. Nor that any man is as bad as he could be. So I'll just right. get that out there. It also doesn't mean that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue or that the human nature is evil in itself or that man's spirit is inactive, as you've just really well said. Much less does it mean that the body is actually dead. What it does mean is that since the fall of a man, there is this curse of sin under which we rest. Uh, this again is default normative. And that man himself is, I like this way of thinking about it, is actuated, like comes into volition. The intent behind the content oh, is all wrong principle. And that we are wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. And this corruption is extensive, but it's not necessarily intensive. Right. So like to say it again, extensive, but not intensive. So it is in that sense that man since the fall is like utterly indisposed, disabled, made opposite to all good. However you want to say it, wholly inclined to evil, which to again, going back to Genesis and Noah being like, my man, like that is what we're saying here. So man possesses a fixed bias against the will of God and instinctively and willingly turns to evil. He's alien by birth and a sinner by choice. So yeah. that there again is that convalescence that not convalescence that like consummation. There is no convalescence here. It's just your dad. <laughs> um, but the inability under which man labors is not an inability to exercise volitions. So you beat me to that point, but I think like that's a really important thing. It's not an inability to exercise right. choice, but an inability to be willingly to exercise holy volition. And of course, it's like that phrase, it's that conception, that understanding, that philosophy that led Luther to say things like free will is an empty term. Right. Or in a more contemporary way, which I think I quoted before, the great... Christian hardcore band Phineas to say free will is a death sentence. Yeah. That's an amazing lyric. That's like exactly in line with all we're talking about. So in matters pertaining to like man's salvation, the unregenerate man is not at liberty to choose between good and evil, but only to choose between greater and lesser evil, which is not properly free will. And yeah. I think that's what we're trying to like, we're really hammering this, but trying to like dive deeply into. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's confusing too, because there are a lot of different metaphors that the Bible uses and that people use to describe this. And sometimes I think we confuse ourselves if we mix those metaphors. So for example, we talk about how the, the will is bound, uh, but we would say that the will is not dead, right? right? So the will is bound in that it is restricted. It can only It can only exercise itself in certain ways and in that sense is not free. But the will is not dead in that it actually does exercise itself. It is able right. to move. We do make choices that are genuine choices and in that sense is free. And so we, we have to be careful when we talk about this. And this is why so many younger 
not necessarily in age, but in like theological progression, younger Calvinists get this wrong because they want to say like, well, we don't have any free will. And they, they really do present Calvinism as though we are just robots or we're actors on a stage or puppets playing a role. And that's not what we're saying when we talk about total depravity. Right. So when I, when I wake up in the morning, let's just take an average day and I, I I'm on my way to work and somebody cuts me off in traffic and I get mad and I'm, I'm unjustifiably mad. And in my heart, I want to murder that person because of my anger. That's a choice. I make a choice to be angry with that person. I know like sometimes emotions don't feel like they're choices, but I've made a series of choices that lead me to be predisposed to anger rather than to peace. Right. Or when I, when I, um, am at the grocery store and I can see that someone is walking, uh, walking towards the register. And uh, I know that really they're there in front of me, but I'm in a rush. So I just, I just hustle up a little bit and I get in front of them. Um, or I act, I walk in front of them and act like I didn't see that they were actually walking to that same aisle that I was. Um, that, that's, that's a choice that I make. And that's a choice, not that is made by a dead will, but a living rotten will that is bound to sin. So we have to get those categories right, or we end up getting our metaphors mixed, right? If the will is dead, then it doesn't do anything. But the will that we're talking about actually is not dead in that it is active towards sin. And then the will that is not dead, but active in righteousness is an unbound will. So I know like there's all these different overlapping metaphors that makes it hard, but I just think if we if we try not to mix those up, then I think it's going to be easier for us to understand all these things. And the other thing that I would add to your list of things that that this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that the image of God is utterly destroyed. In yes, right on. And that's important because you know, you said like um it you know, this doesn't mean that that every man is as bad as they could be. It doesn't mean that every man is uh, utterly lacking in virtue, you know, that whole list of things, none of that is because of any intrinsic lack of corruption in our nature, right? Right. Total depravity means all of our natures are rotten all the way through, all the way down. However, God restrains us. He restrains our sinning, uh, and that's what keeps us from being as evil as we could be. Left to our own devices, left to our own ability to restrain ourselves from sin and, and progressive corruption, we would all be as evil and corrupt as we possibly could be. Right on. But God, for his own mysterious purposes, uh, chooses to restrain sin, and he chooses to restrain sin to greater or lesser degrees in different people. But apart from the constraining uh, constraining presence of the Holy Spirit prior to um, my regeneration and conversion, there was nothing stopping me from sliding into Hitler, Hitler levels of evil. Right? There was nothing stopping me except God's restraining grace. And I think right. that's another thing that we need to land because it's that's part of taking sin seriously. I can't be, even as a Christian, I cannot look at my, uh, at a time that I do well and I don't sin, right? We, we genuinely don't sin in any particular act sometimes. You know, we, we, we genuinely may do an act that is not sinful. That is not because I somehow have mustered that up or because I somehow have purge the corruption out of myself. It's because the Holy Spirit has empowered me in that moment to behave righteously. And that's, if we don't understand that the, the restraint of sin prior to conversion is exactly the flip side of the empowerment of righteousness after conversion, we really lose sight of, of where things are. And then we go back to that thing. We start to boast in our own righteousness and then we're right, right back at the drawing board. Right. It also explains to us and helps us appreciate why in the glorification 
that sinless state will be so glorious yeah. because all of that will be removed. So there'll be a purity of purpose and intent. And it, this will no longer be a concern of like trying to weigh out what it is that even when we do something, as Jonathan Edwards said, that like everything is still just glittering sin. All of my best actions are just fool's gold because there's still a compromise. There is still essentially at the root you know, yeah. like the leaves may look great, but you trace it all the way down to the root and what you find is there is some kind of corruption, which is what we're trying to emphasize here. Yeah. So it just strikes me that it's, it is helpful because I think that is a major criticism against this idea of total inability or total depravity. That what we're saying here is that, well, you have rendered the image of God totally innate, that it's totally gone now. And that somehow man is like just a caricature, a contortion, this evil and grotesque being that is so far away from the image of God. That's not what we're saying at all. Right. And the closest thing that I can come to in terms of metaphor for this is something I think I've mentioned before. And that is what we are after the fall are glorious ruins. Right. So I remember being, and this is like a little bit of humble brag. It's just super cool being in Heidelberg, Germany and seeing the castle in Heidelberg and you can go and tour it and it's glorious, but it's mostly destroyed. But even while you're there standing amongst these tall walls and you see the parapets and all this glorious castle like stuff, which is super amazing for Americans, of course, we have no appreciation for this because it's really outside of our culture and our architecture, but you see it. And even while it is mostly destroyed, you are under the awe of the fact that it is a glorious ruin while at the same time appreciating that it is not what it once was right. or what it ought to be. And yet it doesn't remove the fact that it's altogether awesome. And so there is all of that here. And that's, of course, even what the cans of Dort were trying to get after. I mean, this the issues they bring up of depravity or like, as they say, corruption, conversion and effectual calling. I like what you said, like they're all grouped together and they appear not under the first heads of doctrine, but under like the third and the fourth. And that's primarily because this is like amazingly pragmatic document because the cans of Dort were an answer to like the five articles of remonstrance right. that were published by the Arminians in 1610. And so like you have here like this combating, this coming against, this push pushing away of what is this false sense of doctrine of what it means to be human. And so much that I see in our contemporary world could be allayed or mollified or mitigated by properly answering what it means to be human. But most people in all of the natural man doesn't want to start with total inhability, yeah. right? They want to start with mostly I've got it together or under the right circumstances with the right encouragement, with the right self-help book. I can do all things that I need to do. Yeah. And this, of course, is the doctrine that burns and smites because it comes very much and wholeheartedly against that philosophy. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to move on just because I've said we're going to do this now for three weeks. <laughs> I wanted to move on and take a quick look at some of the some of the immediate effects of the fall in Genesis 3 um, because I think this helps to illustrate for us um, illustrate for us what we're talking about with total depravity, right? Or with, with uh, the scope of sin. So I'm not going to read all of the text. Um, I'm just going to summarize because we're going to run out of time. But when you look at what happens in the fall, right? So the Lord comes and he asks these questions. We talked about this uh, last week where these questions are accusatory, um, examinatory questions. They're not neutral. God's not trying to, um, he's not trying to find facts. He is right. asking questions that serve as a legal basis for condemnation, right? Where are you? Who told you you were naked? What have you done? What is this thing you've done? And so immediately after this, after he asks these questions and he gets some answers that the, the, the first humans kind of cop to the, the reality of what they've done, 
he starts to issue this series of proclamations, these guilt proclamations. And this is where, at least, I don't know if I, I haven't looked at the, the proof text in the, the catechisms or the confessions yet on this, but this is where I'm grounding this idea that the, the corruption of nature flows forth from the justice of God. It flows forth from the legal forensic penalties that God issues to the humans. And then those penalties because of the guilt flows down into all of Adam's progeny, right? So right. to to the serpent, he curses. He says, you're going to do all this stuff. You're going to have enmity between you and the woman. Then there's, of course, the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Then he says to the woman in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth, childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, controversy over that second half aside, what we should see when we read this is that there is a change to the Constitution. There's a physical change to the woman's Constitution such that, although we we may read this and say there may have been pain involved in childbirth, Prior to the fall, think of like that good pain that happens when you stretch a muscle or when you work out and it hurts, but it's good because it's, it's sort of like productive pain. Now that has been increased. It's been multiplied. So there's, a, there's an effect on the woman's body, and that effect on the woman's body passes down from generation to generation through childbirth. And then also there's this section, and I'm not going to get into the, the controversy over what it means, but your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. So now there's, now there's this volitional element. Whatever this means, whether it means what the complementarian kind of like CBMW crowd wants to say that like this is women's desire to usurp the authority of men is rooted in this passage and he's going to, but he's still going to, I don't, I don't know if that's what it means. I don't think that's what it means, but whatever it is, there's a volitional element that the woman's desires have now been corrupted and ordered or disordered in a particular way. Right. And then going down to what, uh, what happens with Adam he says, uh, verse 17 through 19, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So again, we see there's this corrupting influence of sin. There's this, the fact that now man will return to the dust because that's where they were taken. Now man will put forth his effort and he will do so in pain and toil and the land will not produce its fruit. So this has a different element of volitional, of volitional issues, but there is now this pouring out of ourselves, this day in day out working grind to just eke out a living. And some of us can't do it. Some of us won't make it. Some of us are going to starve to death. Some of us aren't going to be able to feed ourselves or our family. That's a consequence of the fall. And so I think looking at these, seeing how these are juridical verdicts and sentences placed upon the people, but then those sentences involve corruption of their nature, which is then passed on to their descendants. It should be easier now that we've looked at that. This this little discussion really fit in with last week's conversation. We just ran out of right. time. It should be easier to see and understand how the guilt of sin is passed down and how that passing down of the guilt of sin is is part of the corrupting influence of sin that brings about the corruption of our nature. And if you look, it also corrupts the world around us. Right? right. The, the, the land is cursed because of Adam. Now, now the land is not morally cursed. There's no moral element to the curse of the land, but the, the sin that Adam and Eve wrought ripples out into the rest of creation and now distorts and corrupts 
and destroys everything that it touches. This is why Paul will say like the whole universe is groaning as it awaits the redemption of mankind, right? Because the redemption of mankind is the redemption and restoration of, of right. all that sin destroyed, all that sin damaged. It, this is this is the scope of sin. It's not just that it's total in terms of the total nature of man is corrupted. It's not just total in the fact that man is corrupted all the way through and all the way down, but also, well, I guess we could say man is corrupted and that goes all the way out. It goes out yes. to creation. It goes out to our relationships. It goes out to our interactions with each other. It goes, it goes in, it goes down, and it goes out everywhere. There's nowhere in all of creation that sin does not touch. So when we talk about the scope of sin, we're talking about a comprehensive, utter, total scope of sin. The only thing that sin doesn't touch is God. Amen. Even the angels, in a certain sense, are affected by sin, even though they're not corrupted by sin, the elect angels. But now they... They have this longing to look into redemption, right, to understand the grace of God as a consequence of sin. So now there's a lack, there's a want in, in the angelic order, something they cannot have fulfilled at this point because of sin. So it really is this utter, utter universal scope of sin that that we did. We did that. And that's a that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's ubiquitous in like the most literal sense of that word. And it strikes me not only does it go I forget all of the things you said, like out, <laughs> in, everywhere, but it comes back, right? Right. Like this, there's a cycle of sin that as we decay, as the world decays. And I think that's the proper way. It's like to think about not just, we're prone to go right and run to, for good reason, the spiritual consequences of sin and that being death immediately. And maybe another way to think about it is this corruption is contagious. So we've yeah. just been through an epoch in our history as a world where we've come to grasp, grasp again, this idea of contagious disease and virus. And that's really what sin is, except there's no escaping it. And so it is contagious and it passes down through progeny. But even beyond that, I think it's helpful for us to understand the spiritual consequences in our own physical well-being and the world in which we live. So like just yesterday, I was thinking about this, honestly, because like it's just easier for me to think about it in these terms because I know that these terms are true. And that if I start here, I'll have a better understanding and appreciation for all the redemption that God applies to us, which includes in one day, in the final day, maybe even in the final analysis, the redemption of our bodies. So yeah. yesterday, I, I have to wear corrective lenses, which by itself is because of sin. And then yesterday, for the first time in a while, I put in contact lenses and I'm getting to that age. My body is decaying enough where now I, maybe there are loved ones who can appreciate this. I know so many are super young and good for you guys. Enjoy your youth. But where I'm, I can only correct one direction. So like, yeah. in other words, I can see far away. The lenses do that. But now when I try to hold something close up to my face, even though I'm wearing contacts, I can't see those things. It's yeah. now blurry. And that is sin. Like yeah. there's just no way around that to, to like placate it any other way to say like, we're just getting older. is just another fancy way to say you begin dying when you're born yeah. and that you are born into corruption and that your body bears the marks of sin. So that when we see in Isaiah that God comes and through the giving of his son, that he bears the stripes and provides all kinds of regeneration and redemption and salvation, that it is a complete salvation. Like first spiritually when we die, to be glorified. And then of course, when he comes again, to be reunited with our bodies in the perfect way in which he attended this reunification of the garden, so to speak. But all of this has to happen because we jacked it up and yeah. sin has come into every facet of who we are, what we want to be, how we live, how we age, how we move through the temporal sphere. Like all of this is because of sin. So it's almost like an understatement, isn't it? To say like sin is ubiquitous. Like yeah. that is, 
the understatement of all time. Yeah. Yeah, that's the truth. Well, on that uh, happy note, I think we probably should wrap up the episode here. Don't forget to check out our Telegram channel. You can uh, join that at t.me slash brotherhood. Lots of great brothers and sisters having really great conversations in there. Uh, people are putting up polls. People are posting memes. All of the stuff that you go to Facebook for <laughs> without all of the venom and vitriol that you find on right Facebook. On. Uh, and then also make sure you check out uh, reformbrotherhood.com slash logos or reformbrotherhood.com slash logos May 2022. Uh, and you can get some sweet deals. Seriously, check it out. This fundamentals package. It's amazing. $50. Is, <laughs> I just can't. I can't get over it. I almost wish I could go back in time and not have logos and then buy this because it's that great of a deal. Uh, and then as always, um, we we very much appreciate anyone who, after you've fulfilled your obligation to your local church and all of the other financial obligations you have, if you find you have a little bit left over and you want to support the work that not only Jesse and I are doing, but the whole Reform Brotherhood is doing, um, yes. we really would appreciate if you would head over to reformbrotherhood.com uh, and look for the join the, Re- join the Brotherhood button. There should be links to various ways you can participate. Uh, and one of those is going to our Patreon is to going to our Patreon. Man, I need to get some sleep. <laughs> One of those is to go to our Patreon, uh, and you can join uh, at any level. There's no special prizes or gimmicks. You just get some satisfaction out of uh, supporting the work that we're doing here. Yeah, that was like, listen, that was kind of like Yoda style. And and I'm glad you brought that up real quick because it's a good way to end, is I want to, we, we're often, or at least myself, sometimes we, we don't come back around to this very often, but I want to thank everybody who supports us, who prays, who's part of conversations, who's in the Telegram, and also those who have uniquely said we're able to support financially through Patreon. That's what makes this free. That's what makes everything possible. It's what brings it into your mobile device on Fridays. It's because we have, oh man, I'm going to use the cliche, but, and I'm almost like hating myself for using this. We have our own Epaphroditus. There's so many of them, right? Yeah. Who come alongside and say, I am willing to come along and help cover costs so as to make this available to everyone and we're super grateful for that. We don't t- we, there's not a day that Tony and I, whenever we record, that we take that for granted. We, yeah. we know that this is like a wonderful team effort. So thanks for being part of the team and for serving our Lord Jesus Christ together. That brings, uh, I know me and Tony, great joy. So indeed, thank you. Well, with that great joy, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.